This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. I have a special episode for you today. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Res. Now, in Native America, we use a lot of acronyms. So, Res stands for the Reservation Economic Summit. It takes place in Las Vegas every year and it's put on by NCAID. That's the National Center for American Indian Enterprise Development. That's the largest Native nonprofit focused on Native business. So I went to this huge event and attended all the panels about indigenous food. I met and saw a lot of people that I've been talking to for years. I also learned a bunch about the future of native agriculture and food business. So in this episode, you'll hear from the USDA, the Intertribal Agriculture Council, and a couple of folks from tribes and programs that are really doing some badass things uh, in this whole movement we call food sovereignty. But before I get into that, I'd like to tell you about a couple of things here. I recently lost access to the original Toasted Sister Instagram. Yeah, so I rushed through some notifications and accidentally entered a birth date that made me too young to have an Instagram account, but it's okay, no worries, I started a new one. So please follow at Toasted Sister Podcast on Instagram, that's the new profile, at Toasted Sister Podcast altogether. Also, I'll be recording a live interview with indigenous food guests at this year's New Mexico Prickly Pear Festival in September. The event is on the 24th and 25th, and I'll also have a booth there where I'll be selling Toasted Sister merch and other artsy things that I do. Stay tuned on social media for more details. All right, let's get into this episode recorded from the Reservation Economic Summit in Las Vegas and in my little home studio that I like to call The Walk-In. I might have mentioned my sister a few times in this podcast. She's actually featured in a couple of previous episodes, but I'm bringing her in on this episode because tribal economics is her career focus. Alicia? Hey, thanks for having me on the show today. It was awesome to hang out with you at Res in Las Vegas, not only because we got to eat at awesome restaurants like Hell's Kitchen, Wolf and Sparrow, and Best Friend, but it was also pretty awesome for you to hear about some of the things that I'm interested in which is tribal economics. I'm the first economist with the Navajo Nation, and my focus has been on two things, primary data collection and redefining what tribal economics is for Navajo Nation. And you know what, this year, this year was a really good year for you, for you and Tosa's sister to join Res because it was the first time there was a series on food-focused panels called Food Sovereignty is Economic Sovereignty. 
Yeah. You know what? I was pleasantly surprised. There was a panel just on working with the USDA. There was a whole panel just on meat processing and then uh, one on starting a food business and managing a warehouse. So, you know, obviously uh, the folks at NCAIED know that food sovereignty is important. Uh, Alicia, Alicia, in your studies, uh, in the work you do now, and even with all the networking you've been doing over the years, how have has colonization skewed and or defined tribal entrepreneurship and economics? That is a really, really good question. And oftentimes it starts a long journey down a rabbit hole on trying to figure out how can we combat this issue of decolonizing tribal economics. Through storytelling, generations and generations of storytelling, there's evidence of our ancestors being entrepreneurs. A lot of these practices involve survival. But it's not just survival. It's also about some societies of some of our ancestral communities have thrived because they've utilized practices of entrepreneurship, of harnessing your resources and, and make, utilizing it in ways that benefit our communities in the most sustainable ways. Um, so I feel like today we have to define these terms and define these practices in these white men ways. And I'm interested in re-redefining them back into the way we used to have them back in the old days, back where our ancestors took care of our communities. In my opinion, that's what tribal economics is, is our communities helping one another to bring up the entire community as one. Um, It's not just an individualistic idea. It's a community idea. In the last year that you've been back at home uh, on the Navajo Nation, paying attention to current Navajo business stories, how do you see ways we can help Navajo entrepreneurs change the way uh, they think and we think about business and economics? Well, it is it is a very real question and real brain teaser to try to figure out what what prevents people to think that they're entrepreneurs when they actually have their own business and they're running their own system of making a product and selling it. We have burrito ladies and tamale ladies all over Navajo Nation. Every time I drive to work, there's this huge line for one vehicle and she is selling breakfast burritos. So she's feeding our community every single day. And it's become part of our contemporary culture. These entrepreneurs, they are waking up extra early to make fresh tortillas, to make all the burrito fillings. They are the real entrepreneurs. They're there every single day. That's business on Navajo. But sometimes they don't see themselves as business owners or as entrepreneurs. It's a label that has sort of this weird weird attitude or this weird feeling. Business and entrepreneurship is like greedy. Some people think of it like that. And so I feel like what we can do is just continue to highlight these stories and normalize tribal entrepreneurs every single day. It's it's how we take care of each other. This burrito lady who's feeding everybody. She's fed me a couple of times on my way to work. What we're trying to do and what I would love to continue to do is highlight small food businesses doing something different to make sure that their voices are heard, their stories are told. And in that, I think we're going to be defining what Navajo business is and how it's changing over the years. 
And a lot of what was shared on the food panels at Res was resources for food entrepreneurs and tribes. So there are people like you and the office you come from on the tribal level and groups on the nonprofit level and programs on the federal level for Native entrepreneurs to look at. Uh, at the conference, there were a lot of stories shared about individuals and tribes doing some really good food business. Yeah, one of the food people I've always been excited to meet was Lance. Morgan. And you actually met him before I did at Res, and you asked him about his tribe's agriculture. Ho-Chunk Inc. is doing some really awesome work, and it was cool hearing him talk to you about some of the legal stuff that they had to go through for the farm. Yeah, he was telling me the Winnebago tribe had to actually change a law. Let's actually just bring in Lance Morgan and go to this interview. Yes, so we had a lot of non-Indians bidding on our tribal land and tribal member-owned land through the BIA. And I noticed that there were about 50% of the value when they bid for non-tribal land. It was about double the price. And it didn't make any sense because it's across the road. So it occurred to me that they were sort of working together in collusion to keep the prices low. And so we passed a law on the reservation that said um, any low, any bid that is considered low could be matched by a tribal entity. And so we had to form a tribal farming corporation in order to make that a credible threat. The first time we did it, we took over a low bid and we farmed it. We weren't very good at farming, but we, we wanted to prove that we could do it. And um, the next year, all the bids came, on, came in equal to what they pay for non-Indian land. And so that has been a wealth chance of about $15 million since then, additional money uh, to the tribe and the tribal members from the bids being at market rate now. So it's been a huge boom, and we used the BIA regs to do it because the BIA was reluctant, I think, to actually do this. And so we only quoted their regs in the policy of the tribe, and when they passed the law, um, they had to follow it. And that's been a huge boom for tribal farming and also for um, the lease rates for the tribe. Okay. So what does your tribal farming look like right now in Winnebago, right? Yeah. Well, our farming was pretty sad. You know, we didn't, we just... We actually outsource most of the farming, but we've been buying equipment and, and, you know, we've got storage and we've got tractors now and all these kinds of things. And we've actually been able to make a profit farming. I think last year was our first, our most profitable year, about $600,000. So it's about one and a half million extra to the tribe. Plus we made 600,000 on top of it. And so it's been a big boom. And um, we now have lots of jobs of people working in farming, and um, it's becoming a much bigger part of our economy. And we've been able to move up the sort of the value-added chain from just leasing the land to actually farming it and producing uh, tribal products. Yeah, you mentioned value-added a couple of times in there, and um, expand a little bit more on what value-added is. Well, value there's there's a you know there's a difference between the corn you plant in the ground and the and the the Cheerios that you get or oh you know or you know the cornflakes you get at the end of the day and the box of cornflakes is five times what the corn cost or ten times and so that's the value add you've got to process it you've got to turn it into a product you've got to market it and tribes are not very good at getting the value add I mean just getting we weren't even doing the farming we were just getting the lease income and we were getting screwed on that and so we fixed the lease income part that added a lot of value. And now we're making money on the farming, and that added value. But if we can figure out ways to make unique tribally oriented products and market them, then we'll move, then we'll control the entire value chain. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, uh, last question here. Um, you are a lawyer and an economist, and, and you're dealing in all this food here. Um, how, how has that experience been for you? 
Well, I knew I knew the system was rigged because I was an economist, and I knew how to fix it because I was a lawyer. But that doesn't mean I knew anything about farming. <laughs> and so, fortunately, we had a tribal member who had been going to college for farming, and we sort of fast tracked him. and And he knows the details, to be honest. And he's done a great job. His name's Aaron Lapointe, and um, you know he's got a bright future with us. And um, we just needed somebody that knew what the heck they were doing. And I think that that plus the capital that we have as a bigger company, and and the system that we changed for ourselves. Um, is, is really allowing us to thrive. Lance mentioned Aaron Lapointe at Ho-Chunk Farms. I caught up with him too. He's the agribusiness manager for Ho-Chunk Farms. So with Ho-Chunk Farms, I manage their entire company. I've been overseeing them for about five years. Ho-Chunk Farms is a 6,400-acre tribally-owned farm that has really made, the, made it our goal to reclaim our tribal farmland and to start utilizing it to get our highest returns and to manage it in a way that's sustainable long term. We have one of the largest organic operations in northeast Nebraska is a thousand acres. We raise organic corn, soybeans, alfalfa, soybeans, field peas, just a huge variety. We, we really try to diversify our organic operation using regenerative farming practices and a lot of that is being sold to local livestock, organic livestock producers. Um, a lot of our conventional grain is sold for ethanol, and our alfalfa is just sold to our locals um, that raise cattle. We have 150 head of cattle that we raise to really uh, mitigate risk in the commodity markets, but also to have the security of having our own beef local for the Winnebago tribe. Whole Chunk Farms is also um, big in uh, revitalizing uh, cultural foods. One of our largest efforts is our Indian corn project. We've re- revitalized our our Winnebago tribal Indian corn. Um, we've been doing that for four years. We raise about 10 acres of it um, in the community. We partner with the school, we partner with Boys and Girls Club, and it's a huge community effort to really reconnect ourselves with one of our cultural foods. Our school uses that as a fundraiser for educational trips. Our Boys and Girls Club use it for funding. And then uh, one of the biggest gains from that project is our youth. They're, they're getting to understand and they learn, they're gaining knowledge around one of the main crops that helped us survive through all of our movements. Ho-Chunk Farms does a lot in that area. Um, we are currently constructing a regenerative poultry operation, which will be supplying our local school, our local food distribution programs, and that will be fully integrated within our organic farming. So all of our organic crops that we're raising will be fed to our organic poultry, and our organic poultry manure will be used to fertilize our organic land. So it's a really a full, fully integrated system. And then what I do with the Food Sovereignty Task Force is... It's a huge collaboration between multiple tribal programs that work together to address the food shortage issues, the health issues that we have. Um, our hospital is a part of this committee. Our, our college is a part of this committee. Our producers are a part of this committee. And we find a way to mold us all together to tackle the issues that we have around health due to our diets. So through this, we've started a tribal farm that has an orchard. It has a, a two-acre garden. It has, has chickens, pigs, goats. And uh, we do our traditional corn there. We, we have a vineyard, we, we, and it's really used to be an outdoor classroom to educate our youth so that we can continue to grow in this area because it's new for us as, as Winnebago tribal members. Farming ain't new to us, but to this generation, um, we've never really been exposed to it. So it's really trying to redevelop that identity as, as farmers. Um, and that's where we're, where we're doing our regenerative poultry operation and we're construction, constructing a greenhouse and about three or four hoop houses. And we're really trying to, to focus on being able to provide our own food for our community. Through the pandemic, we realized 
um, how food insecure we really are. Uh, when some of those food channels get shut down, we get put in a tough place and, and we don't want to have that issue again for future generations. So we're trying to tackle this issue through a huge collaboration within all of our tribal organizations because a lot of tribes have their healthcare systems, their programming that, that encourage kids to, to do physical wellness, but they don't all work together for a common goal to really utilize all of their strengths. And that's what our task force does that um, I'm the vice chair of. And I was on the initial bo- initial committee when it started. And yeah, I do a little bit around hemp with Winnebago Ag and Industry, which I'm the president of. It's really a new company that hasn't done much yet, but we're really looking to to maybe get our feet wet in that industry as well. Um, We see it as a good alternative crop for our row cropping from the industrial side and the grain side, especially if we're going to be when we're raising these livestock. If if we can get um, hemp grain passed by the FDA as a food source for livestock that'll be huge for us to be able to continue to raise different grains to produce high quality livestock we were one of the first growers in nebraska we were state licensed hemp growers in 2019 did a pilot project learned a lot about the crop and plant and we're really trying to move forward in that with all the knowledge that we gained there and yeah that's 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 pretty well what i do and i i just i give the tribe a lot of technical assistance when it comes to agriculture when it comes to land management when it comes to tribal land laws and policies and things i try to help on that side as well yeah and i was talking to lance just the other day about how him and the tribe kind of like spearheaded just changing a couple of laws or changing the way they could use land yeah lease of the land and you know that's that's such a big issue for a lot of different issues in Native America, especially when it comes to uh, economics. But, you know, you're witnessing this, you know, how have you seen just getting that out of the way really just open up gates for all of this food industry uh, within Winnebago? Yeah, so that's that's the that's one of the most key parts to our success. That's when Ho-Chunk Farm started, that policy and those laws were developed the day that we started. And that was the only way we could be successful is if we gave ourselves leverage to be successful with with practicing our sovereignty by developing law and policy to give us the ability to really move forward and and start farming our own land. And it's real crazy to think that we have to develop laws and policies to farm our own land. But um, when our land is being managed by a federal agency, um, you got to be innovative and come up with ways to to really find find access to land, because that's one of our largest issues in Indian country is we have a lot of tribal people that are interested in in being producers but access to land can be an issue when it comes to whether it's trust land or fee land whether you own land yourself or you want to go lease through the bureau all of these things they they bring issues and some some of our tribal members might own land um, but they're only majority owners are they're just they're they're not majority owners but they're they just have slight ownership in some tracts of land but it's in trust so they can't even leverage that to get a loan to to be a farmer so there's, there's all these different federal laws and regulations that kind of put us in a tough position as farmers. So by us actually, as Lance always says, take control of your destiny. When we did that that day and implemented it, that's really what set us up for all this long-term success. That's a true testament to being strategic about your approach and thinking long-term and what needs to be done and understanding your, your authority as a, as a tribe, as a tribal government to be able to practice your sovereignty and implement laws and policies that give you an edge to be successful because 
everybody's in the same game. You give yourself an edge. It really gives you the opportunity to stand out and to continue to grow and be successful. When I started in 2016, we farmed about a thousand acres. And right here in 2022, we just, we just got done planting 6,500 acres. I mean, we're, we're really starting to take control over our reservation, becoming one of the largest farmers in our area. We're starting to buy land with all of the revenue and the profits that we've been able to gain. Um, we've really changed the game. And when Ho-Chunk Farm started, there was no tribal farmers. Everybody was non-native. It was all leased to non-natives. We didn't have control of how our land was being managed from a farm practice standpoint. So not only are we seeing financial gains, but we're also seeing gains in the sustainability of our of our tribal lands through our land management policies and through our land management practices that we use and through the farming and regenerative practices that Ho-Chunk Farms really prioritizes for, for long-term because some of our non-native farmers might not really care long-term. They, they, they want to get their biggest return. It's not their land. They're just leasing it. Get what you can. And if you don't get it back, so what? We take a much different approach as a tribal entity, as all tribal members, and having having different morals and connection with the land that that um, that's really more sustainable for 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 the tribe and for future generations, which is really important to Indian people. So, when that law and policy was developed, and um, and uh, I have to give all the credit to to them for doing that um, back in 2012 for the Winnebago tribe and how it's changed the game. And now there's other tribes that reach out to us and they want to understand our farming structure. I mean, we, we really have a model that's that's proven and, and we share that with everybody. We can tell them the next, what the, what steps to take to get to where we are. And then we're always open to doing that. We have tribes come to our, come to Ho-Chunk Inc. three, four times a month, there's a different tribe there. So, we, and we share our story and we share our successes and we share what it takes to get to that point. It's, it's, it's a great success story for us, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't just end with Ho-Chunk Farms. It should be other tribes looking to, to, to broaden their, their mindset of, of what agriculture means to them and what land management means to them. Young people in farming and agriculture, you know, that's not, um, you know, the job that every young person, you know, really wants to, you know, look forward to. I mean, yeah, it's changed how we think about farming. And um, we've definitely talked about that in this podcast, in um, some of the other uh, food work that I've done. And it's cool that you guys are uh, trying to uh, motivate young people to get interested in agriculture. Uh, But for you personally, what was, um, you know, what inspired you to go into this kind of work? You went to school for agriculture management, right? Yep, and I get I get asked this question a lot just because I didn't grow up on a farm. We didn't have tribal members farming, and there was no tribal farm when I was deciding what I wanted to do with my career. But the the initial thing was I didn't want to be a businessman that was wearing an office or that was that was in an office all day wearing a suit and tie. That that really wasn't um, what I wanted to do. I liked being outdoors. Um, when I was a sophomore in college, I I worked for the Environmental Protection Department for the Winnebago tribe, and I seen our land base. I didn't realize how much land our, our tribe had and our allottees. And I seen how underutilized it was being used um, by just being leased out to um, non-native farmers at a really low return. And so I thought that, that's really something that I could that I could find passion for in my studies is if I, if I went into agriculture because I see opportunity and I see us, I see us mismanaging and I see us underutilizing a huge asset that our tribe has, and and I didn't want that to continue. So that's what that's what caused me to go into agriculture, and I wasn't sure I'd, when I first got into it. I thought I was the only uh, non-white guy in the classroom. I didn't have cowboy boots on. I didn't have 
tore up jeans or anything. I didn't really fit in in at the at UNL on East Campus. I mean, it's a it's a different it's a different vibe over there that from what I was used to. But I knew it was important for me and it was important for for our tribe to be involved in that. So so that really drove me to to continue in that area. And luckily, I was able to be an intern for Ho Chunk under Ho Chunk Farms. Um, when I was a senior in college, finishing up my degree in agriculture. And that's when it really hit me that everything that I'm learning in school is really going to help benefit and accelerate our tribe. Some of the work that Ho-Chunk does, we, we see the we see all the great things that Ho-Chunk Farms is doing. But on the back end, our tribe is benefiting so much by, by us just being a player in the game. We've leveraged local farmers to pay fair market value, which has increased, as Lance said in the in the session that he had, we've 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 increased our revenues for tribal, for tribal members and the Winnebago tribe by fifteen million dollars since inception, and that's a huge number that we were always missing out on. That's only ten years ago for us. We've been leasing our land since we've gotten here. So you got to think about all the money that we've missed out on by just letting non-natives do their thing and let them make their money. So this has been a huge transition in wealth from the non-natives that were farming our land to us farming it, making money and reinvesting that into our community. And we're really starting to see that transition. Now that you say that, I mean, we, we have, we have interns, tribal farms has had interns the past couple of years. I just transitioned it last, my last year's intern into a full-time position. He's now one of our ag business supervisors that helps oversee projects and oversee some of our employees. So we're really starting to, to increase awareness around our community and making Making farming cool. It's not, I always share, I, I go and talk to classrooms all the time. Um, I talk to, I was the commencement speaker this year for our high school, and I go and I, I talk to these kids and I tell them, and farming isn't, you don't have to think about farming as, as a white guy wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. We've, we, we were farmers when we grew up generations ago, and we, we have to re-identify ourselves with that. And it's cool to be a farmer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I was a guy that you probably would have never thought been a farmer if you asked any of my friends growing up. Like, I was a huge sports guy, basketball, all that. That was my that was my life, like a lot of other um, Native um, kids on the reservation. But I'm trying to change that, that identity with farmers. Like, Native Americans can be farmers, and we're seeing huge initiatives happening and a huge transition in Indian country that... Has started to, we're starting to realize it's really important that we really start targeting the ag industry as a profession, as a, as a business, as something that we really need to focus on because it's something that we really don't utilize very well as, as tribal nations. I went into agriculture because I didn't want didn't to be in an office all day, and now I'm managing a huge farm. I end up being in the office a lot, but I can always, if I ever want to just go hop in a tractor or do something like that, I always have that ability. So I, that's what I love about my job is being able to work with our tribal members, develop. I mean, we're we're actually building farmers as we're farming. Our tribal members never farmed, and and our employ our employment is all tribal members. So and I'm the oldest guy working for Ho Chunk Ho Chunk Farms, and I'm 31 years old. So we're developing these people to be long-term farmers, and they love it. And it's it's really helping them connect and build build an identity for themselves that that this is new this is the next thing that the Winnebago tribe is going to do I want to be a part of it so now I I know multiple ag students I got people that say they want to come work for me that are in high school and it's it's really becoming a cool thing now and I'm excited because our success really is based off of how many youth we can we can bring into this because I can only go so far with Ho Chunk Farms. The people were that are working for me right now can only go so far. We have to make generational impact to see long term success. Yeah. All right. You're the oldest, and you're 31. 
Awesome. All right. Um, well, is there, looking at what's being said at all of these panels here about um, economics in Indian country, you know, you're networking and, and talking to other people from other tribes. Is there something maybe that um, you're excited for in the future when it comes to native farming or anything else you want to add to what you've already said so far? Yeah, no, I think this was this has been a great experience for me coming out to Res because I've been able to see a lot of other tribes that are doing other things. Um, I've actually made some connections with another tribe that's not too far from us that are really doing a lot of things similar to us that we can complement each other through 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 partnership. And and that's something I'm excited to do because these guys have have really accelerated themselves. They visited us. Oh, about five years ago and they wanted to start farming and then now I meet them again five years later and they're thriving and they're a potential partner and they're I'm actually really proud of what their tribe has done and I want to I want to be a partner with them so that's something that I'm really excited for and that's that's a really big takeaway through through this through this program and being able to network and 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 really understand I mean we've we've been we get we get so stuck with with what we're doing back home and see our our local success there's other people out there and there's other entities that are doing things as well that can really complement your organization or your company and it's it's really important to really branch out and understand that that there's other opportunities out there and and in Indian country it's not it's not tribe against tribe who can do better it's how can we all work together to develop something really strong and that's something that Ho-Chunk lives by is by by sharing our story bringing people along with us but we also have to do that same thing when we see other tribes that are succeeding and and developing partnerships and and things like that. Land is the name of the game for many tribes and their agriculture ventures. Land status and access to natural resources is a tough thing to understand and hold on to. I talked with Heather Don Thompson. She is the USDA Director of the Office of Tribal Relations, and land is something they focus on and help tribes with. One of the challenges is that a lot of our agricultural infrastructure grew up in a way that was different than we think about and do things in Indian country. And that has created a lot of unintentional barriers. And I'll give you two examples. One is the manner in which we own and hold land, which is for a lot of us held in trust with the United States government. So there are a lot of programs that either A, have challenges and they don't understand how to finance trust land, and then B, other programs, particularly within the federal government, have miscategorized trust lands as federal lands. And when you're categorized as federal lands, you're in the same category as the National Park or U.S. Forest Service, and that inadvertently makes you ineligible for a lot of programs. So that's one of the challenges that we're trying to overcome and fix, is how tribal trust lands are categorized and how they are financed. How does the USDA um, work with tribes? The United States Department of Agriculture has a very formal tribal consultation policy in which we work directly with tribal leaders to advise us on these policies and how they would like us to proceed going forward. We also have several relationships with indigenous-facing organizations like the Intertribal Agriculture Council and the ITBC Intertribal Bison Council who have direct relationships with Native American farmers and producers, and they help us facilitate those direct conversations and relationships as well. Looking in the future, are you excited about uh, native food economics in the future? I think that we are seeing a renaissance 
of native foods that I am thrilled about. And I think a lot of people in Indian country are as well. A lot of our foodways were harmed against um, no fault of our own over the last few centuries. And I think Native American tribes and Native American individuals are working very hard to reclaim those native foodways to protect and regenerate our indigenous plants and animals and to build really strong sovereign food systems so that we can feed our own nations and our neighbors. I could definitely hear the excitement from everyone at the conference about the future of tribal food economies. One of the big groups advocating for food is the Intertribal Agriculture Council. I spoke with Tommy Peterson about the future and opportunities. Tommy is the regenerative economy specialist for the Intertribal Ag Council. I think in the last two years you've seen everybody's worried about where their food comes from and uh, the security issue too is how, how easily can we get this food to our people. And I'm a producer myself being a cow-calf rancher. Um, that Your food is right there the whole time. Our, ourselves, we always grew food in our cultures and we just needed to take back over control of our food. I think supporting our existing producers, exporting our tribes that want to get into the agriculture sector, it's a, it's a wonderful sector. I mean, food is great. Especially, I love the idea of our indigenous foods. I've seen so much successful stories of uh, the seed keepers are able to keep our um, traditional food and actually the nutritional properties that are great for our people also the profit margins because these are very rare. There's a price margin too for, because they're not at the, the front end of the market. So there's so much opportunity in agriculture and um, I think right now you're seeing the potential. You're going to get your youth involved, our tribes involved. I think we take this momentum and, and we can start, uh, start moving the dial when it comes to economic sovereignty. Well, I think Indian agriculture has the potential to keep up with American agriculture. Like I, I mean, I said in there, um, U.S. exports like 20%. It's 200 metric ton of produce. Um, within that, if we look at the acres in Indian country, I mean, I think Trust Line's 58 million acres, and then you on top of the data that's owned by Native producers, it's 78 million acres um, that has potential use to be products that could be sold export. Um, you know, internationally, there's a huge opportunity to sell internationally, and we need to feed the world. Um, the first one, we want to feed our own people, right? But then there's that profit margin with bringing that outside dollar, especially outside the country dollar, back to your community. In Indian country itself, um, tribes have the ability to make trade negotiations outside of the U.S. That is available. There is such things as foreign trade zones. There's a lot of money in agriculture, and there's a lot of culture in agriculture, right? So in all reality, we really are helping our people. Um, I think just uh, have hope for the future. Is there like maybe a connection, an inter-tribal global um, food ag connection or anything like that? Um, so American Indian Foods is a part of the organization I work for, the Inter-Tribal Agriculture Council, and they are, um, it's a program that is uh, funded by the Foreign Egg Service um, and has the ma their MAP cooperator, which their whole goal is to be able to get businesses that are under our programming into the international markets. On top of this, we've been discussing what it looks like to indigenous, indigenous trade. Trying to find our partners in um, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, and actually American New Foods is going to be in Australia coming in May, end of May, for two weeks where we're doing a trade mission in Australia with indigenous groups. Trying to find out what that market looks like for our people in Australia, but potentially making those business partners with you know how indigenous 
communities in Australia can find buyers in the U.S. It's a trade mission, and it's the idea that we have a shared history and a shared um, goal to provide um, that economic support to our producers through agriculture. So Tommy mentioned a lot about global trade and the opportunities that will come in the future for that and the work that's currently being done to promote and enhance that practice of global trade. This makes me think about our stories of Chaco Canyon. We have evidence of our tribes having items from the Pacific Northwest, from the East Coast, from down south, from South America back in the like items that have come through those trade routes. That's global trade. We've done that as indigenous people. We've done that. It's been a part of our culture and a part of our growth and survival. Yeah, so global trade has colonized and I think now is the time where indigenous peoples are finding ways to re-redefine it and go about these practices that mirror that of what our ancestors did. And I think that's really cool. You know, as I started my job at um, Navajo Nation Division of Economic Development, I've come across a number of people and one of them, one group has been very focused on how is Navajo bringing back the, the food sovereignty, the agricultural business of feeding our own communities. And I think it's very important. It's an essential, critical part of our economic development, our economic status, our well-being, overall well-being. And so the importance of these conversations is crucial to our tribal communities because food sovereignty is economic sovereignty and and it, it's going to help our communities for generations. I'm Alicia Murphy, economist with the Navajo Nation. You also heard from Heather Don Thompson, Tommy Peterson, Lance Morgan, and Aaron LaPointe. For information about myself and other guests, see the show notes or visit ToastedSisterPodcast.com. While you're at the website and you love what you see and hear from this podcast, please support and sign up to be a patron on Patreon. Music is made for Toasted Sister by our friend C.W. Aon. Check out his music at cwaon.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. Andy Murphy is the host, producer, and founder of Toast's Sister. She's also an entrepreneur. She is also a producer and uh, a... <laughs> Start that over again. Uh, even though she doesn't call herself that. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she is also a producer of Native America Calling radio show, and this episode was made possible by her piggybacking off of the Las Vegas work trip. Mm-hmm.